with me to Luke chapter 12. And we've got a, a pretty decent sized passage that we are going to be looking at today in Luke chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 13 and read on to verse 34 as we see this encounter um, that Jesus has and the instruction that he gives us from it. And as I hear pages rustling, I'll give just a minute. And the word of God says in the gospel of Luke, these words. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even the one that has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, you will, now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. He said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor to your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storehouse for the, or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour of to, your, to your lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and, and what you will drink. And, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. Please be seated. You've probably heard the, the statement made, um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And if you haven't, or, or you really don't know what that means, this is a kind of old proverb, so to speak, not necessarily a scriptural one, but a proverb that says it is better to keep what you have than to risk losing everything to chase more. Generally speaking, this is very good advice. 
If you went to a financial advisor, they would probably give you similar things. Even we in the church and myself personally, I, I would affirm this in most cases. I am, for one, opposed to things like gambling, where you might be uh, tempted to, to lay everything on the line and hoping for a big return. I think it is good that, that a person should be wise with the money that they earn and that they should spend wisely and save wisely in all of these ways. These are good applications of that saying. When we say something like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, we're telling us to, to be wise with what we have already been given so, and not to chase after foolishness. However, when we read a passage like today, and if we used a proverb like I've just read, a bird in the hand is, is worth two in the bush, to, and apply it to what Jesus is telling us in this passage, it begins to break down. In fact, it begins to kind of have a problem and maybe even seem to go against what Jesus is actually saying. And it turns into maybe not necessarily good advice, but rather a faithless call to keep what is yours. It's interesting. This proverb works very well when we're talking about making, making good financial decisions and how to invest our money. But it really does start to break down when we think about our relationship with God, our faith, and with giving our whole life to Jesus. See, this whole keep what is yours mentality that we often see promoted in the world today um, seems to actually be in a direct conflict with the teachings of Jesus in this passage. On a day like today, where we are focusing on stewardship and how the, that God calls us to, to give and, and really how God calls us to use our, our money, it is often really important that we take a moment and actually look at what Jesus says in regards to how we handle money. And begin to realize that Jesus is calling us to much more. And that we would begin to think about the things of God, it might be worth more to release the bird in your hand. Let me show you what I mean through our text today. And I'm going to just point out some kind of interesting things and some things that I think we should learn from this passage today. And, and, and we're going to be dealing with, with greed and with money. And we're going to just kind of understand what does this mean in light of kind of the context of something like giving within the church and this term we use, stewardship. The first thing I want you to notice about this passage is I want you to notice the subtlety of what is happening here. See, all of, this, all of this teaching, everything that Jesus just says in this moment is not just out of nowhere. It is not just because he just said, hey, now would be a really good time for me to talk about money and greed and those type of things. But something happened in the crowd that caused Jesus to have this response. Our, our passage begins literally with Jesus kind of teaching and he, he's traveling and he's doing his thing. And he's, he's, he's at a point where he's got a, a crowd around him and people are, are, are listening to his teaching. And then a call from the crowd goes out. And it just says that a man in the crowd, someone in the crowd is the very first words that we see in our passage. This guy has no name. 
We don't know who he is. We don't know where he's from. We have absolutely no description of this man whatsoever outside of just the fact that it was someone. A man in the midst of the crowd shouted out to Jesus. Now, there's only really, if we kind of look at it, there's only really one thing that we know about this guy. The only thing we know about this guy is that he has a brother. That's all we know. We don't even technically know because he talks about his dad, and the, or he doesn't really talk about his dad. He talks about an inheritance. We don't even technically know if his dad's dead yet. Because we've already kind of seen from like the prodigal son story that there were times where there were people that wanted to demand their inheritance in their cup before their father had even passed away. But we do know he had a brother. And we can probably safely assume about this guy that he's probably not the oldest brother. He's probably, I like to say, he's probably a little brother. And I get that because I'm a little brother. I've got an older brother. And so his call out and his request to Jesus is, is Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance up with me. And so the reason I think we can probably safely assume that he's a little brother is because typically, in tradition would hold in, in this culture that if you were a father and you had multiple sons and multiple children, that as you, when you died and you passed on your, your land and your inheritance, that, that the, the biggest portion of it would go to the oldest son. That basically roughly about half of it would automatically go to the oldest son and then the rest of it would get kind of divided up among the others. They usually said that the oldest got a double portion simply because they were the oldest. And so this man is saying, hey, tell, and he would have been in charge of all that. He would have been, we would say today, he would have been the executor of the, of the estate. And so this man saying, hey, tell my, tell my brother that he needs to give me my money. Or maybe even implying he needs to give me more money. That it's not fair that he gets the double portion, that he gets more attention. But we don't really get any of that from the passage. Just that, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And it's interesting because we, we, that we get this kind of request, we get this demand, and, and what's kind of interesting is the passage doesn't tell us anything about this guy, no details, nothing like that. And even Jesus doesn't ask any details. Even he doesn't say, well, what's going on? Well, what's happening? Tell me about it. There's nothing like that at all. All we know is that this man from the crowd felt as though he was being cheated out of his inheritance in some way, shape, or form. And yet Jesus doesn't even deal with or ask for any of the details. He just says, who appointed me as a judge or arbitrator over you? He says, what, what do I have to do with this? Why does this concern me? What makes you think that I'm the one that is qualified to deal with your little, your little thing? See, Jesus understood that the main point of his purpose and why he was here was not to settle court cases between people. This is ironically a very different thing, response than what we see in Moses from saying like chapter Exodus 18. Where Moses, when he kind of got the people out and they had been set free from Egypt, Moses would go from sun up to Sunday, settling every single dispute that, that could possibly come up within the nation of Israel. So much so that his dad finally called him and said, you need to get some other people to do this job. You need other people. You need to get judges. You need to get other folk that will come in here and do all the minor stuff for you so that you only have to deal with the major cases. 
But when we fast forward to Jesus' day and someone comes to him with a case, he says, this is not what I'm here for. I didn't come here to settle your disputes. This is not why I'm here. My mission is not to settle all of your peddly issues. I am here, and if what we know, and he doesn't necessarily say it here, but what I am here to redeem all of, of, of the world from their sin, I'm not worried about your, your squabble with your brother. But he did see an opportunity to teach the crowd something. And he used it in order to point out that greed is a problem. Jesus is implying by his very response here that the issue with this man is not that his brother is mistreating him or that in some way, shape, or form he is being slighted, but rather that he is greedy and is just seeking more. See, this is the the subtlety of greed, and I would even say by extension, this is the subtlety of sin in our lives. See, this man presented his problem as though he was the one being mistreated. He presented himself as though he was the one that was seeking justice, that he was the one being swindled, that he was the one that was being mistreated, that he was the victim in this situation. But Jesus saw through this and recognized that what was really at play here was not his brother and maybe the greed of his brother, but actually the greed of the man who called out from the crowd. The man did not say, make him give me more, but rather ask for a more equitable division of the inheritance. He gave the implication that in some way, shape, or form that he deserved it and that he was being cheated. Look again at verse 15. Jesus said this to them. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. And so what this man had done and what many people may not have perceived in this passage is that there is that greed can take on many forms, just like sin can often find a way to be justified in our mind. This man, he took this greed as his greed kind of took on this form of I'm being cheated, that I'm being mistreated. But we can see greed in many other forms if we will take a moment to reflect on it. In the case of this man, it was give me my share. Or maybe even just give me a little more. Other forms of greed may take on the mentality of this is mine and you can't have it. I earn this. I work for this. This is mine and I deserve it. Sometimes greed is just simply saying my priority. I'm the first priority. And I want my needs met before anybody else's needs are met. And I'm going to take care of myself before I worry about other people. Some people, their greed takes on the form of how they manage their time. And I'm only going to make time for the things that, that add to me, that bring me wealth, that profit me, that bring me joy, that I, that I like and that I want to do. That's still a form of greed and a form of selfishness. I think another form of greed that we see in the world a little too often is that we only see people as a means to profit. And that we will only befriend ourselves with people that will benefit us. And when the moment somebody ceases to be someone that we can use and gain a benefit from, we do away with them and we begin to seek someone else that we can use and seek profit from. 
In fact, if we look at verse 15, he begins to, after that, define what greed is. He says, for not even when one who has abundance does his life consist of all his possessions. See, this is a good working definition of greed. Greed is organizing your life around your possessions. When you take your time, your priorities, your resources, everything you have, and you, and you take the, all those things and all of those work towards possessions, cars, to toys, 401ks, trips, careers, whatever it might be, and your life revolves around, everything about your life revolves around more. More of this, more of that, more of these things. And it's always about, really for lack of better words, about your life, your comfort, your things. That is a good indication that, it, that greed has taken over and is now dictating the priorities of your life. And that's exactly what Jesus points out in this passage. This man could shape and he could structure his greed in any way, even so much as to making it appear as though he is the victim of someone else. And yet the reality is it is his greed at play. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we have to be on the alert. Because one thing that you should understand about sin, and this goes far beyond even just dealing with the issue of greed, is that even your sin is lying to you. And your sin is trying to convince you that you are in the right and that you are the victim and that, that you are justified in some way, shape, or form and that it's really not a big deal and that really you're okay and really it's nothing that you need to worry about. And you guys have got to understand that sin and the world is lying to you because sin and the world was lying to this man. And the only way we are going to recognize the truth from the lies, especially as it deals with the sins of our lives, is through the Word of God and being aware. Being spiritually aware of how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and talking to you through God's Word. And so if you are not, we have to live lives of self-reflection. We have to live lives where we are thinking about our lives and our priorities and our, even our thought processes so that we can recognize the sinfulness in our life and repent of it and make changes. Often this is done very well with accountability people, other people in your life that you love and that you trust and that can speak truth into your life. One of the greatest blessings that we have in life, and not everybody's called to this and that's fine, is when you have a spouse who will do that. And that you will allow to do that. If there is one person in this world that I know will let me know when I am being a knucklehead, it is my wife. Because she does it all the time. And if it's not her, it is my firstborn, without a doubt. And we need to have that in our lives. And if you don't have that spouse, which not everybody is called to have, that, have a spouse, or you may not, you have parents, you, have, you need to seek someone out that you can go to that will speak truth into your life and not just tell you what you want to hear. And I'm not talking the coworker that is at your job that also practiced Wiccan on Saturday. I'm talking about good, God-fearing Christian people that are going to speak the word of God into your life and that you will allow them to do so. Because we have to be on the alert. 
Jesus then goes on and he begins to teach them a, a parable and give them a story to help them understand what is going on and why something like greed is such a problem. He actually really tells a story about what we would consider greed on full display. Uncompromising, un, uh, you know, uh, you know, no guilt, no shameless greed on full display. And he tells the story of this rich man. Now, what is interesting about the rich man is that he is rich from the onset of our story. That he is already wealthy. And that he is, that then not only is he already wealthy, but then he has this absolutely fantastic year in the harvest. And all that he owns is extremely fruitful, so much so that he is suddenly faced with what we would consider a wonderful dilemma. He has such an overabundance of crops and fruit and whatever it is that he has grown that he does not have a place to put it. And so he asks himself the question, what do I do with it? Now he had options for certain. He could have sold it. Since he had an overabundance, he could have taken it out into, into the, the market and the world around him. And he could have sold it to people at market. And he could have gotten rid of, of whatever he did not need by, by putting it out there and selling it to people. And, and, and maybe even trading and amassing um, other things unto himself. For some reason, he chooses not to do that. Maybe his concern was that if he took his large crop and he put it into the system and put it into the marketplace, that it would reduce its value and its price. And he wanted to maintain the worth and the value of his particular crop. Maybe he just didn't need or want anything else that local people had to offer and didn't want to wait on the return that may come from, from selling it and flooding the market with what he had. He could have also given the excess away. It is undoubtable that this wealthy man knew that there was poor people around him, knew that there were people with no crop, knew that he probably even had slaves and day laborers and people who worked for him, and he could have blessed them with it. He could have said, we've had such a great year and you helped me bring it in. Here, take more than what you would have earned. Take more than the denarius that I, I've already paid you and, and enjoy this and use this for whatever blessing and whatever thing you want to use it for. But he didn't do that either. Maybe he had the mentality of, well, they, they, I gave them a fair wage and, and, and this is my stuff. I earned this. I put in all the risk. I did all this stuff and, and they, get what they, they get what they get and they can't throw a fit. He could have given a larger love offering to the Lord as he was, we could assume, this is a Jewish rabbi teaching Jewish people. There would have been automatically assumed that the man who had the great crop was a Jewish individual. And he said, hey, I've been exceedingly blessed of the Lord. I am going to give a huge love offering to the temple. And I'm going to take this grain and take this excess and I'm going to give it to the priest and I'm going to give it to them as a love offering. And, they will, and I will be blessed because of it, because of all that God has done for me. And this will be my act of worship for God's good favor. He didn't choose to do that. Maybe he had questions like, well, how do I know that the temple will use it wisely? How do I know that they might have the right storehouse? What if, what if they just let all of this perfectly good produce that I have go bad? What if they waste it? I mean, they're, they're Levites after all. They don't know anything. And whatever reason it was, he chose not to do it. Or he could keep it all. 
And he could turn around and build bigger barns and bigger silos and bigger places to store all of it. And he could keep it for himself and, and use it as he saw fit to live the good life and to, to, to live in comfort and to, to just enjoy it for himself. So that the only person that was really, truly benefiting from his huge crop would be himself and his immediate family. Guess what he chose? He didn't choose to risk it devaluing in the market. He didn't choose to help the poor and bless those that, that were without. He didn't choose to give it to the Lord in an act of worship. He chose to keep it for himself. Because of his selfishness and because of his greed. And because of his selfishness. And because of his greed, that very night, God took his life. The passage says that the Lord spoke to him and called him a fool. And he ended his time in this earth and he would never get to enjoy that crop or that harvest for even one day. For even one moment did he get to do what he had planned in his heart. Now I want you to look to what Jesus says about this parable in verse 22. He says, or excuse me, verse 21. He says, so is the man who stores up for himself treasures and is not rich towards God. Now the interesting thing about this passage is, is um, when we look at, at verse 21, um, he implies that he made a choice. And really those two words that stores up, stores up treasures for himself and rich towards God is actually using the same general word. He says, and so, is it, so it is for someone who is rich towards themselves, but not rich towards other people, is generous towards themselves, but not really generous towards other people. And he implies, even in this passage, this man had a very serious choice that he needed to make. And his choice was, do I use what God has blessed me with in some way, shape, or form to further the kingdom of God or to bless other people to, what we would say, fulfill the greatest commandments, to love God and to love other people? Or do I use what God has blessed me with purely to love myself? He made a choice between investing in himself and life under the sun or investing in God, which is an investment in, in eternity in his walk with God. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we have the same choice today in our lives. And it's not just about our finances and the ways that God get, blesses us material, but it's with everything we do. Think about your life. You have a choice with how you invest your time. You have a choice in how you invest your brain. You have a choice in how you invest your, um, your strength and your energy and even your finances in the things that God has blessed you with. Your money, your time, your energy, your priorities, even your career goals, all can be asked of you. Are you using these things to invest in the world, to invest in life under the sun, or are you using them to invest in eternity and in the kingdom of God? 
This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where you invest is where your heart is. And if we have consumed our lives and we have consumed our time with investing all that we are into this world, then make no mistake, then our heart is in this world. But if we choose to invest our heart and we choose to invest in eternity into the things of God and into the kingdom of God, then brothers and sisters, that also is where our heart is. And so do we have eyes and a heart for this world or do we have eyes and a heart for the kingdom of God? Only you can answer that, but I will tell you this. And however you may answer this question, be aware of what 1 John 2.17 says. The world is passing away. And also it's lusts. And that word lust means the desires that, it, that are contained within it. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Where you invest is where your heart is. One has no return. And anything that you might get from it, you will most certainly leave here. And one day, all that is here will be no more. The other has an infinite return, an eternal return that will be with you far longer than you can even imagine. Jesus switches gears after giving this parable and gives them what to do. And he, he says it this way. He, he, he tells to them when he begins to turn to his disciples, he's, he's given the parable and he's told the people and, the, and the kind of the crowds at large about this, this danger of greed and what happens when we invest in the world and not invest in life. But then he turns to his disciples and he says, and he says, if we look again, he looks to them as disciples is for this reason. This is a continuation of, 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 of even this teaching is for this reason. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you wear or what you eat. Don't worry about the things of this world. Now, I'll be honest. I've seen a lot of hate in, in, in kind of dealing with the, the church in general when we say things like, don't worry. And there's a lot of people out there that are even getting to the point where they say, well, you know, when you tell somebody in your church to not worry and, and to not allow these things to, to threaten them, that, that even equates itself to like abuse or dismissiveness or, or really it's unhelpful. But see, that's the thing is we, we don't read the whole scripture. We don't take the whole thing. It's not like that Jesus just turned to his, his disciples and said, hey, man, don't worry. Be happy. Put your chin up. Everything will be fine. Do, 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 do. If you're too young to know what that is, then you can talk to me later. But he goes and he says, listen, don't worry about things like what you eat and what you drink. And let me show you why. And he cast their eyes out to what they see in the world around it. He grounded it in the world around them. And he said, look at the ravens. Look at the birds. Look at them. They, they fly here and there and, and they don't sow. They don't reap. They don't build barns and they don't create storehouses. And yet the Lord feeds them. And you're worth more than those birds. Ravens are big, ugly, black birds. 
Y'all are beautiful people. God is going to take care of you. He goes on to say, look at the lilies. Look at the, the flowers of the field. He says, they don't sow, they don't spin. They don't toil over their garments. And yet God clothes them beautifully. In fact, they are more beautiful than anything that man could ever create. We could even look at fashion throughout the years and recognize how we are trying to even come close to the beauty that we see in nature. And yet even those flowers are flowers one day and brush for the fire the next. He says, God values you more than both of these things. And if he provides for them without them having to, to worry or to fret, then he will provide for you. Now, this doesn't mean that you do nothing. Birds still go looking for food. Flowers still have to start off as, as a seed or whatever in order to grow. But you don't need to worry. And we can ground ourselves into what we see from Scripture and what we see from the world around us to remind us that God indeed loves us. And he will care for us. Jesus himself says in our passage that really worry does nothing. It can't add an hour to our life. It can't add an inch to our height. Worry will not fix our problem and fretting will not ultimately bring us resolution. Worry produces no fruit, no solution, and no relief. So what will? Jesus answers this question too by saying, seek first the kingdom of God. See, that's the answer to even the parable, which is that we should focus our lives on eternity and not just the world. Take stock in the things that, that cannot be taken from you and, and to take and to put away and to not take stock on the things that will be taken from you. To be obedient to his word, to as our, our passage in Colossians in Sunday school this morning said, to grow in our knowledge of God's will and on our understanding and in our wisdom, to fulfill the great commission and, to the, and the greatest commandment. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Knowing that God is with us, that Jesus is with us, even to the end of the age. To love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. It is no accident that God contrasts being uh, greed with seeking the kingdom of God. For when you are greedy, you will leverage everything in your life to benefit you and your comforts and your desires and your ways. But when you are pursuing Christ and when you are pursuing his kingdom, you will leverage everything in your life to benefit Christ. To make him known and to see him glorified and to see him worshipped in all of the nations. The proof is usually in the pudding. So the question for all of us today is how are you leveraging your life? And for what are you leveraging your life? Are you leveraging your life for your retirement? Are you leveraging your life for your children or your grandchildren? Are you leveraging your life for your career? Are you leveraging your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I can't answer that. 
And I'm sure none of you would actually want me to. But how are you leveraging your life? And don't, don't think that just because you're 12 or 14 or 16 that you don't have to ask this question. Because what you're doing right now as you go to school and as you're getting that education and as you're growing in who you are as an individual, you're still leveraging your life. Are you leveraging your life for video games? Are you leveraging your life for your friends and your social circle? Are you leveraging your life because you want to have a certain career someday and you want to make the money and you want to have that? Or are you leveraging your life for Christ? And see, and I say all of that to just ask it in a much more simple way. Are you leveraging your life for the world? For this life under the sun? Or are you leveraging your life for the kingdom of God? That will last far longer. Before we close our time together, I get the feeling that you probably already know the answer to that question. And so as we go to a time of prayer, we are not just going to pray like we normally do, but we are going to take time to pray a prayer of confession. Because, may, because I believe that at least someone in this room, and he may be standing behind the pulpit right now, someone needs to go to the Lord and confess the reality that they've been leveraging their life for this life. For things that are under the sun and things that don't matter. And we're going to take a time to pray and confess that and pray that God will change our heart, that we might live for him and for his kingdom and for his righteousness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we do praise you that you are a gracious God and that you are quick to forgive. Lord, we live in a society that emphasizes self more than anything else. And many of us are taught and even trained from a, a very young age to take care of ourselves first, to pursue the American dream and to achieve all that we can achieve in this life. But God, often we are not taught to leverage our lives for your name and for your kingdom. And God, I, I come before you now and even in my own heart, I know that there is a a, a myriad of ways that I leverage my time and my efforts and my energy to benefit me and to benefit my own and not to give you glory. And God, I know that there are people in our group today and people that are watching online that, that, that are feeling that same burden, that they have leveraged their lives for things that, that belong to this life and under the sun. And God, that they are things that are, they are investments that will not carry with us to eternity. And so, God, we come before you now as a church to repent of how we have, have invested and we have stored up our treasures and even put our heart in this life. And, God, I pray that you would reveal to us how we might leverage our lives for the kingdom of God and place our heart and our treasures in your kingdom. God, we know that only you can reveal that through, to us. And God, that you will do so through the word and through 
through just the burdens of our heart. But Lord, I pray that we will be individuals and a church collectively that will offer all that we are from our time and our energy to our, our possessions and our finances. That we will take these and that, that we will hold them up to you with open hands. And God, that we will ask you to use us as you see fit. And God, may all that we do glorify your name. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.